Dante, welcome to Validated. Thank you. It's great to be here. This is an episode we've been wanting to do for a while. Amira Valiani, head of policy at the Solana Foundation, is also joining to co-host today. Welcome, Amira. Hey, Austin. Excited to be here. And hey, Dante. This is one of those big episodes that, like, Amira and I have been kicking around for probably four or five months at this point. Getting into the why and the how of stablecoins, um, specifically with the United States, looking a bunch at regulation, adoption, because there's sort of this this idea that a lot of people have been circulating on for, for years that payments are one of the original use cases for blockchain that never really caught on, but that a whole series of things have occurred now that we're ready for stablecoins to catch on and to potentially be something that propels industry forwards in terms of adoption. I want to get into a bunch of the of what's changed in the last, you know, five years of stablecoin development, um, if that thesis is right, and what the regulatory landscape in the United States and internationally looks like to actually make this stuff be a reality. That's definitely a very ambitious agenda and timing feels right. Yeah, I mean, the timing timing's right for a host of reasons, including, and Dante, I know you track this really well, the the first stablecoin legislation to make it out of committee at the House at so the end of July and now going into the fall session is, is hopefully we'll see payment stablecoin legislation get voted on the floor. But before we get into sort of the policy piece of things, I want to take a step back because one of the things that uh, Austin and I were chatting about before this episode, and I think you and I probably face a lot when we're talking to policymakers, Dante, is um, people asking if, if stablecoin are sort of this big send-all to solving so much to do with payments and financial inclusion. Like, wh why just don't we see wider stablecoin adoption? And I'm curious, you know, internally when you're, when you all are talking about the growth of payment stablecoin, um, you know, where you think, how you feel about the trajectory of stablecoin over the last, call five years, and, and why you think we haven't quite reached this inflection point that everyone says might be coming, or have we reached it, we just don't recognize yeah, it. Yeah, well, no, first of all, it, it's great to be on with both of you, and, and I do think it is, you know, like in most technology conversations, the quest for the killer app is part of what motivates developers, investors, and sort of all of the protagonists in the industry. And, and it's, you know, maybe a little too gratuitous for me coming from Circle to say that I think stablecoins very much are crypto's killer app, but that notwithstanding that, not all stablecoins are created equal. So, so it is a fair discussion. Um, I also would say, I think we've already reached escape velocity for, for the stablecoin innovation, right? And so my measure is if you look at the past charts of exponential or emerging technologies and you think about how long did it take the... Tel telephone, for example, or the mobile internet to reach, you know, 100 million people, that at some level, you know, the stablecoin product, just in the case of USDC as an example, we have USDC enabled wallets in more than 191 countries. Um, I think as of today, we've processed more than 10, uh, sorry, $12 trillion of on-chain activity. USDC will soon be enabled across multiple uh, 15 total public blockchains. Uh, the developer ecosystem piece of this, of course, can't be ignored either. And then more importantly than anything else, it's the integration with household name payments companies. Uh, Visa is a very recent example. MoneyGram, the UN, and, and uh, WorldPay are just a number of real-world examples where the stablecoin is the medium of exchange for a whole host of novel use cases. So I think we're reaching escape velocity, the question of permanence and where can I go buy a cup of coffee. I would expect my colleagues, uh, you know, from Solana have some good answers for that, too. Yeah. You know, it's funny. 
we look at the issuance of USDC, and it's about $25 billion as of today, if I'm not mistaken. And that peaked, if I think if I'm remembering correctly, somewhere around 50 or 55 um, you know, at, at the top of the market. Th- those are big numbers for crypto, right? Th- those are really impressive numbers in terms of like taking digital dollars and putting them on chain. But they're actually still very small in, in comparison to if you look at other types of where U.S. dollars are used in, in financial markets um, or even compared to some of the deposits at you know, some of the large banks nowadays. So I, I think like within the crypto space, that thesis that stablecoins have hit breakout you know, adoption, uh, fairly accurate. What what do you see in terms of that charting us forwards though? Like, do, right. do you see a world where we're actually looking at USDC or other payment regulated stablecoins replacing things like SWIFT and ACH for the way that banks are actually moving money around, sort of at that commercial bank to commercial bank level? It's a, it's a good question. So number one, I would say the 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 total circulation of a stablecoin isn't necessarily the only proxy for the product success. Um, because, you know, we, we would like to think of um, issuance of a stablecoin is a privilege, redemption is a right. And so any stablecoin like USDC that is supposed to present a redemption right to the holder, uh, the ability to kind of come in and come out of it and return to dollars um, is a really critical feature. We've tested that very recently here in the United States, which which speaks to the decline of USDC overall in its, in its circulation. But it doesn't... Um, but but growth and total circulation alone doesn't capture everything. The other metrics that really matter are payments activity, velocity of payments, and the total transaction throughput. And what we see is that there's a lot of users of USDC that um, effectively are using it as a digital store of value. The quest for dollars all over the world is a really important piece of the puzzle. And because we haven't trapped the the users inside a walled garden payment system, the holders of USDC effectively have a digital dollar as a store of value. And then more of the flywheel starts to turn online, the more interoperable USDC becomes with traditional payments networks. And so in that sense, I don't really think of this as competitive to traditional banking networks at all, like SWIFT or others, which is why I think Visa has you know, been such a powerful advocate of these innovations. Visa wouldn't necessarily do this if it was going to cannibalize their business model. I think of payment stablecoins like USDC are going places where brick and mortar finance and traditional payment networks cannot. And and there's a whole host of payments use cases in the programmability and composability category that pick those places up. Yeah, it's interesting to kind of think of it from that perspective because, you know, the rates on credit card fees have been going down over the last 20 years or so. I think they've dropped almost an entire percentage point over that period of time. So you do see pressures from other ways to pay and move money slowly getting into that merchant space. But you know, it's funny you mention this because the original v- vision for Visa, like back when the network was originally created as a nonprofit, uh, was to be a medium of interchange for for anything, not just, uh, you know, I don't think we normally think about credit card dollars moving around as digital dollars, but they are a form of digital dollar. It's just a fully a fully custodial, you know, one party system of of accounting. So, what are some of those use cases for USDC and stablecoins that you think are not necessarily competitive with the ways we use and use and move money through things like credit cards nowadays? Well, well, so and maybe the more fundamental question is, a stablecoin, what is it good for? To put it into perspective with virtually all major payments innovations, 
since cuneiform tablets were recording de de ledger entries, um, you know, debits and credits, and we solved for the double double entry bookkeeping problem. All the way through to today, most major payment networks, and certainly all of the ones that you mentioned, Visa, Swift, ACH, um, electronic fund transfer, you pick the method of moving money in the 21st century. In most cases, each of those networks are making marginal improvements in messaging instructions. And the message being, whose balance sheet do I debit or do I credit when a transaction is being consummated? And then along comes the payment stablecoin like USDC. And what it is fundamentally, and Visa actually was um, in an interview with me not long ago, and even they had observed these benefits, is that with a payment stablecoin transaction, you're actually sending the digital bearer instrument to the recipient. And so you have settlement finality as soon as the recipient receives it. That's a very, very powerful breakthrough. Um, and to do so at internet scale, where you're not um, stranded inside walled gardens or you run the risk of the rails on how money moves becoming obsolete, which is a very big risk that we face in a lot of the traditional payment systems, there's a whole host of other upgrades on top of that. But I think the core of it is settlement finality and the transmission of the digital bearer instrument versus sending a messaging instruction, uh, which introduces lots of risks and, and other issues and lots of interoperability challenges in traditional payments networks. So there's one piece of this I'm really curious how you sort of square with that that vision, because I think that is sort of at its core, one of the real promises of blockchain is that we do have true instant finality and instant settlement or as close as we can, whereas ACH and wire transfers, they take, you know, an order of magnitude of time. I'm curious, you know, all of the sort of stable coins that would qualify as compliant or potentially compliant under this sort of stable coin legislation that's been proposed that we'll we'll get into in, in painful detail in a moment. Um, you know, one of the things is, though, like famously, Circle has freeze authority on all the USDC and issuance. And that, that's, as far as I understand it, one of the compliance pieces as well. And there's a very high threshold for meeting that. Um, but sort of in your view, how does that need for government control or the ability to comply with a subpoena that's a lawful order to freeze an account? Um, that piece seems like in some ways, until you've redeemed a stable coin, it doesn't necessarily have that same amount of settlement finality that you, you might see if someone can sort of reach into your account and, and freeze that. How do you think about the interplay between those two components? Well, look, I, I think that, first of all, it is a fair question. And um, and I think as many, many in the industry learned during the Tornado Cash event, that at some level, number one, all of us in the sector have to categorically reject good technology being co-opted by bad actors. And, and irrespective of the form factor, the movement of money, especially if you want the money to be institutional and trusted and bankable and interoperable with the, the world and major payment systems, it has to conform with a certain set of rules. Chief among them is the protection of financial integrity and being responsive to a rules-based system around financial crime compliance and sanctions obligations and so on. Otherwise, I think, frankly, a lot of the crypto economy would be self-referential, um, if you forgive me for being too blunt, perhaps self-referential trading of JPEGs. And what, what gives crypto value is the ability to have on and off reps. And if you care about world scale financial access like Circle does, and if you care about giving people everywhere access to digital dollars that they can trust, you also have to respect the rules that apply to other, other responsible actors in the financial sector. And so yes, the ability to intervene and to be responsive to financial crime compliance is a very high standard, 
but it, it's not one that we operate under any arbitrary norms whatsoever. A lot of other so-called stable coins and a lot of, uh, of other crypto projects are able to make freezing interventions and it seems to be pretty arbitrary. Whereas in our model, it follows US rule of law. It follows a, sort of a, a regulatory standard that I think should be what we promote everywhere. And we should promote that standard across all asset classes in the space. This seems like a good pivot into some of the current uh, regulations on stable coins today, as well as some of the stuff that's potentially coming down later this year. Amira, do you want to walk us through what that looks like today? I want to I want to go back quickly before getting into the legislation. So one thing you said, which is sort of digging into how this idea of real time settlement is a game changer for payments. Because I think, you know, a lot of conversations I have about stablecoin with policymakers, but also just sort of like gen pop about its value is really trying to drive home how valuable it is to have something like real-time settlement or programmability. And I think it's really difficult to drive those points home, mostly because I don't think most people know how the payments system works today and sort of all these different pieces that introduce friction into it. And so I'm curious, you're, you must be the master of talking to like the lay or skeptical policymaker about the value of stablecoin right now, and particularly why this is a marginal improvement. Like, you know, put me in the room. How do you actually make that argument about why this is actually better than the existing infrastructure? Yeah, well, and I don't know if it's if, if I would use the qualifier better because the the aspiration, so I came to this sector actually from the lens of national security and sort of global security first. And and a very real example, and at the time I was, um, this was back in 2017 and, and beyond and earlier, I was um, an advisor on FEMA's National Advisory Council, which is the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency. And when you think about the ways we move money in disaster response, it's pretty pitiable. And so my view is the goal is not to introduce a better payment system necessarily because each type of payment system will have different features and benefits. In a you know free market-based economy, the objective from a payments vantage point should be as broad payment systems optionality as possible, including cash, right? The ultimate offline payment instrument is cash. And so if you care about national security and you care about the ability to mobilize funds quickly, then payment systems optionality should be the goal. And for a lot of the topics that might have felt abstract pre-pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic was actually a teachable lesson in how far behind our payment systems are in the United States compared to very, um, what would be cons considered sort of uh, maybe legacy payment systems even. Domestic fast payments were woefully behind in the United States. And just very recently, um, The Rock and Oprah Winfrey had to use their public platforms to tell people who were responding to the Maui fires trust us, we will assure that any dollars you send to our charity will reach the desired beneficiaries in Hawaii and in Maui. And, and in my view, that's, that's not good enough. Certainly not good enough if you care about population scale financial access. And it's not good enough when you realize that the financial system has hit a point of diminishing returns. And so actually my, my newest analogy, I have a whole, you know, candy jar full of analogies. My newest one is no one cares about the plumbing in their house until they can't flush the toilet. And I know that's a pretty colorful analogy, but but the the plumbing of the financial system is the issue that blockchains and stablecoins are trying to upgrade, not to substitute them entirely, but but a lot of the plumbing for the 21st century movement of money is literally stuck. And so another good analogy is how useful would Gmail be if a Gmail user couldn't send an email to a Hotmail user? And I think stablecoins and public blockchains infra infrastructure allow for that 
cross-cutting movement of value on the internet in an open protocol-based manner, as opposed to walled gardens and siloed payment systems. I'll, I'll, I'll play skeptical staffer and push you just a little <laughs> bit more. Uh, cool, Dante. Uh, that all sounds really interesting. And I hear all these dreams about interoperability um, and the ability of sort of the payment system to um, be able to reach more people or be more inclusive. But the fact of the matter is today I can take my credit card and I can go to, you know, sort of a, a rural area anywhere in America and in most places in the world. And I can pay for a cup of coffee pretty seamlessly. Um, and it works for me. It works for that merchant. Uh, why do we need to change anything? Why, why can't we just focus on what we have today that that plumbing seems to work fine? Well, that presumes, of course, that the skeptical staffer is already giving you the answer that we most often see, sadly, in Washington, which is that if it depends so much on the postal code lottery. If skeptical staffer was born in the right postal code, the presumption is they were born with the benefit of having full banking access and so on. What the skeptical staffer, however, does not see is the exacting cost that the credit card charges and the merchant acceptance charges on both the small business or the, the coffee shop in this case where the coffee was procured and the fact that all you did in that transaction was subject the coffee shop to a couple of days before the funds actually arrive. And so we have a banking system that takes banking holidays. We have a banking system that exacts the highest cost from people, the people who could afford it the least. And very basic things like sending a wire transfer or sending funds quickly um, are exacting. The argument a lot of the banks would make is that, well, it's because you know of the cost of compliance or the cost of access or the cost of all the overhead. What blockchains and payment stablecoins do is they eliminate a lot of that overhead and fundamentally create alternative ways of giving people access to dollars, financial services, and so on that are device-centric. And not just device-centric, but candidly at world scale. So let me be another skeptical staffer for a second. <laughs> um, so we have the internet today. We have instant APIs. And yes, maybe the Fed is very slow, but we see this in, in the UK. I can email you money, like uh -huh. email address to email address. Somehow, magically, I hear you can do this, but I, I'm in the United <laughs> States, so I've never actually seen this work. But, uh, you know, it, theoretically, we have this stuff. I have Venmo today and, you know, you can send me money on Venmo and that's that's, you know, owned by PayPal at the end of the day. And like this stuff basically works. And so why bring North Korea into our little private party transaction? Yeah, well, look, I love speaking with skeptical staffers, even when you're just pretending to be. The, um, well, number one, it, it is telling that when PayPal sought uh, strategy to enter the 21st century and candidly from a long range strategic vantage point remain relevant as a fintech and as a payments company, it's no surprise that they turned to the payment stablecoin strong construct and to digital assets in their own estimation of how to upgrade their systems and ensure a more interoperable payments environment. And so I would say, watch what they do, not what they say. Uh, it, and the reason that matters, since you mentioned Venmo, Venmo is owned by PayPal, but to my knowledge, a Venmo user cannot execute a payment to a PayPal user because the core technologies of the platforms do not speak to one another. And I also think we should all categorically reject the notion that Broad financial inclusion in digital assets equates to um, ransomware, equates to unchecked financial crime compliance risks and bad actors. Arguably, um, this technology and its maiden voyage to going mainstream has, uh, number one, given bad actors difficult places to hide. Any money movement network will eventually also attract illicit finance. 
But I think the, the, the emergence and the codependence of this industry with what I like to call a sort of digital fire brigade, companies like Chainalysis, Elliptic, and many others are also part and parcel. The model of, you know, responsible world-scale digital finance um, is also a place where you can make pro progressive improvements in combating illicit actors, including North Korean money launderers and, and many others. Yeah, you know, I, I do love that that kind of answer there. And like <laughs> one of the most amazing blunders in interoperable standards of all time was uh, the inclusion of electronic medical record requirement in the 2008 to 2010 healthcare reform package. But no requirement those systems actually support a common file format or be interoperable between each other. Uh, so we still today, even though we have electronic medical records, have doctors faxing stuff back and forth because uh, two different systems won't talk to each other. Well, and, and just one more tiny historical add on is, you know, the best business case for why crypto matters and why, frankly, everyone in free society should care is actually the Equifax data breach. Uh, the Equifax data breach exposed 150 million people, roughly the size of the U.S. workforce, for the rest of their natural lives to identity theft risks. And there are two principal vulnerabilities, single source of failure databases that are honeypots and an alphanumeric social security system that is your identifier for the rest of your financial life. And those two things, if nothing else, speak for the need for open, public, resilient and disaster proof technologies that can scale like uh, blockchains have. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news, and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto, but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. So so let's pivot in because you're very compelling, Dante. I have no doubt that, you know, you've done a lot of these meetings and people listen to you and they're like, this makes sense. I can see um, why there's use for open interoperable blockchains and payment stablecoin in particular. And then I look back to July. So in July, we had two different bills make it uh, to the committee level in the U.S. House of Representatives. And, uh, you know, by all accounts, going into the vote on payment stablecoin, People thought that the payment stablecoin legislation was was going to get more bipartisan support. It was going to sort of move further. Uh, move further is not quite the right word, but just be uh, an easier sort of push along than uh, the market structure bill, the other bill. And what happened was was sort of the opposite, where you saw the payment stablecoin legislation in the final day of committee um, become the subject of a lot of rancor. I wasn't in the room, but I hear uh, there was some yelling between members of Congress in the room. It was pretty dramatic. And some what happened there? Like, what, what is the gap between, you know, this very logical, uh, well thought out explanation for why this legislation would be useful and what we actually saw happen at the end of July, which was Congress moved to pass payment stablecoin legislation to the next step, but but amidst a lot of heartburn. Yeah. Well, it's funny because um, I have a half written article um, that I will publish eventually that is looking at how the United States. <laughs> yeah, right. I have a, quite a few of them, but it looks at how the United States can avert a crypto constitutional crisis. And so that July House Financial Services hearing was, on the one hand, crypto's finest legislative hour, because this wasn't the only bill that was passed in the, in the House uh, or in this particular subcommittee. Uh, it was also perhaps our country's, one of our country's darkest hours in terms of congressional civility and conduct. 
But nonetheless, I think the outcomes speak for themselves. Because if you rewind the tape to where stablecoin policy and regulatory attitudes began, it actually began with a world of let's ban these innovations outright. They're systemically risky. They, they have no utility value. They're merely poker chips in a crypto casino. And, and if they are allowed to scale, they would dethrone sovereign currencies. That was the starting point back in 2019. Um, I know I had a front row seat. The, are we talking uh, about Libra now? Yeah, I'm talking about Libra, but more generally, the asset class and the payment stablecoin innovation was not received by anybody anywhere uh, with sort of um, uh, open arms. Then you fast forward a little bit, and the next major set of global conversations from the Financial Stability Board and the President's Working Group on Financial Markets consigned the innovation to banks. You may recall the PWG, the President's Working Group, indicated that Yes, these things are systemically risky, potentially, especially offer variations. Therefore, only insured depository institutions should be stablecoin issuers. And that would have consigned the innovation to the banks. So I think of the, the bill that showed up in the House Financial Services Committee in July as enormous progress because, number one, it captures the notion that the innovation is permanent. It captures the notion that the innovation is both a bank and non-bank innovation. And it starts to establish the sense of consensus politically in a city that is otherwise completely partisan and tribal. Uh, there is some common, there's a common denominator here. And although it was narrowly bipartisan with five Democrats supporting the bill, I think you could sense there's a lot more interest in, in getting the stablecoin agenda right. Um, particularly now that Congress is back in session, you could see some interest also on the Senate side as well. So I remain optimistic, but, but to have policy optimism, as you know, Amira, I'm speak, I'm preaching to the converted here. You actually have to have a, a view of the market longer than one quarter at a time. Um, and so that's why I wanted to provide the little history lesson from bans to bipartisanship. I think we've made an enormous amount of progress on stablecoins. So looking at the progress that's been made over the last few years in terms of stablecoin support and adoption and people beginning to understand, especially in, in Congress, how these things can actually be, be used. Um, I think it's worth talking a little bit about New York in this process as well, um, because, you know, New York has a, a very different regulatory regime here. Um, it is seen in some places as a policy success by policymakers. And I think it's seen as um, a disaster by those of us who are actually in the blockchain industry. Um, in looking at a process like that going forward, it's like what what New York DFS has has done um, do you think a model like that where we're talking about almost blockchain by blockchain certification is appropriate as we move forward with this stuff? Or how does Circle and how do you view um, re legislation that provides clarity versus legislation that would actually complicate the process here? Yeah, I mean, one, we we are sort of an operating company, right? And And our view is separating what is the financial activity and the issuing redemption asset liability management side of the equation very clearly in the regulatory perimeter from what is ultimately a technology-driven ecosystem and an and a ecosystem where USDC will soon be on 15 uh, public blockchains, where we ourselves are putting out technology services like the Web3 programmable wallets or the cross-chain transfer protocol, is that the, the real crux of public blockchain-based financial services is that we now have the first time in global finance the opportunity to benefit from non-proprietary, constantly upgradable technology. 
I think engaging with regulators and policymakers on why that is an important piece of the puzzle, not a substitute for brick and mortar banking, not a substitute for traditional finance and traditional capital markets, but additional to them is going to take some time. Um, on New York specifically, um, one of the interesting things, at least at the macro level, that you could observe about major financial centers like New York or like Singapore or like Hong Kong and London and different financial cent centers around the world is that in, in no small measure, advancements in crypto regulatory policy are the matters of city-states, perhaps more, more so than they are the advancements of nation-states. And so Circle takes a serious view of the developments coming out of New York DFS. You may have read um, the recent Wall Street Journal article, which highlighted the fact that they have uh, 60 total uh, crypto asset um, staffers in New York DFS, which arguably may be as much or more than the rest of the country. Um, so New York has built, as a regulator, a very powerful framework. We observe it. We are regulated by DFS. We were the first company in the U.S., in fact, to get a New York Bit license. Um, but we think those developments become powerful net exports to other jurisdictions. And candidly, I think it's a part of what's informing the federal developments and federal legislative developments. So like BitLicense specifically is one where there has been some appetite from other states to potentially export that policy framework. Um, is that a, you know, California has been considering something similar to this as maybe a few other states as well. Is that something that is detrimental to a company like Circle being able to operate stable coins or at this point, do you guys have enough, quite frankly, lawyers on staff that th those <laughs> sorts of things are just, uh, it's nothing compared to the other types of requirements you already have? Well, it's not about having lawyers on staff, Austin. It's actually, you know, our operating model today and has been actually circles uh, 10 years old this year and USDC is five years old this year. And all along, we've never taken the view that because there's a void of federal rules, that there was a void of regulations of the innovation. Uh, definitionally, we started USDC off as electronic stored value, and the company went and obtained 48 state money transmission licenses, the very same regime in which equivalent payments companies like PayPal and others live under. And so the reason a lot of the policy and politics around digital assets I call a crypto or a fintech constitutional crisis is because the issues are actually much deeper than technology. The issues are um, states' rights, the, the, the role of U.S. states in banking and payments, the supervision of payments in the U.S. and the supervision of insurance is, is a state-based activity. But there should be a federal floor. The reason I think the federal floor matters is because a company like ours competes at world scale with nation states and with other companies and with other jurisdictions. And should a digital dollar like USDC be regulated outside of the U.S. first, that's going to require federal intervention and federal legislation. But at the same time, if we want to continue having an operating model that promotes states as the labs of responsible innovation in payments and banking, then state oversight has to be protected. They're the crucibles of our democracy. They're the crucibles of our economy. And I think that same operating model is holding true in digital assets. It's no different than what we've seen in any other sector. Yeah, I guess I kind of want to like push you a little bit on that because, you know, the the online betting industry is one that has had to deal with a huge amount of geocompliance. Um, so I, I was listening to a, a, an interview on, on the technology behind this. And one of the fascinating things is they have to be able to say, are you on 
a piece of federal land in Washington, D.C., or are you on a piece of D.C. land? Because federally, you're not allowed to do something like sports betting, but uh, you know, on a state-by-state -state level or even a municipality-by-municipality level, y you can be. If you scale that sort of regime up to something like a stablecoin, uh, you know, you could see a world where very much like how Montana has now said, you know, you can't use TikTok in Montana starting at the end of the year and, and starting at being 2024. Um, you know, how would you bring a compliance model that is maybe that exact into a state by state regulatory system? Do I need to now grant, you know, my, my wallet on my phone uh, geolocation permissions to be able to send or receive something like USDC if we really get into a state by state or municipality by municipality regulatory regime. No, it's a good question and and I think in in the in your statement you also describe the nexus of where the answer lies which is that you know um, if you never use the word stablecoin blockchain or crypto once what is circle we are a wholesale financial markets infrastructure company and what is the outcome we care most about dollar denominated settlement at internet scale but in order for the market and the end user to get access to that product or service, effectively, you have a value chain built around this, which incorporates digital asset exchanges, uh, virtual asset service providers in the parlance of the industry or uh, VASPs. And, and at the end of the day, ultimately, the individual wallet on an internet connected device that the end user chooses. Those choices will be dispositive of not only how responsive the entire value chain is to an existing or an emerging set of rules, but also to the individual set of preferences that the, that the holder of the tokens might choose. The classical euphemism, not your keys, not your crypto applies, um, but, but, I, but it also will be uh, true to be able to say that um, whatever the privacy requirements are in that individual jurisdiction, whatever the emerging standards are in that jurisdiction are going to help shape what the end user's experience will be of USDC in their wallet alongside any other digital asset that they might custody. Those questions are very big. And I do think they're not necessarily anathema to a free market-based model or to a democratic model. I actually think those are expressions of democratic choice, uh, hardwired in code and in software and sort of individual financial rights. But there's a, but there's a serious polemic um, that will be had and is being had around digital assets uh, that you just touched upon. I want to go back to uh, this congressional engagement piece or actually just broader um, evolution of how D.C. is thinking about crypto in particular. And, and actually, maybe this will give you a bit of PTSD, Dante, but I'd love to go back in time to the Libra days um, and, and just walk through one for, for those uh, who might not know what Libra is, sort of walk through what that project is and give us a taste of what what your engagements were like when talking about the promise of Libra uh, back then, uh, you know, take us back in time uh, a little bit and tell us a little about those interactions. Yeah, I might actually get PTSD just thinking about it. So, well, look, what, what Libra was in many respects was a couple of things that are not necessarily the norm for big tech. One was permission versus forgiveness. And so in a, in a white paper published in June of 2019, the idea that, you know, a consortium could be formed of which I was a part. Um, that could introduce a blockchain-based payment stablecoin network that, that would effectively allow people anywhere to send and receive money the way they would send and receive messages. Lots of that in hindsight feels a little naive. <laughs> Lots of that, of course, in hindsight has also been vindicated 
that that these innovations would eventually go from you know fringe finance to the core of finance, which we're now seeing today. But that what the world wanted and what regulator regulators want is accountability. Accountability in regulated financial services today is entity based as opposed to activity based. And so they want single necks to choke. They want counterparties that can say, look, if banks fail, we will back up the individual payment stablecoin with our balance sheet if necessary. If there's a problem at world scale, you know, counterparties and companies need to be representative of that. And this idea that an amorphous consortium would be enough uh, to get something at the type of scale that Libra represent is hard. Indeed, in our case at Circle, one of the reasons we uh, recently ended the center consortium uh, which was originally set up as our stablecoin self-regulatory organization and had many similar facets to the Libra project was because today there's sufficient clarity around the external rules and the regulations of these innovations and what types of standards regulators, policymakers, and others expect, as well as the types of counterparties that make the stablecoin available to millions of users around the world. Can you give us a few examples of additional clarity between 2019 and today. I, I think if a lot of people in, especially on crypto Twitter, sort of view that nothing really has happened in the last five years. Well, um, you know, look, as Amira can attest, I mean, I think one of the more, nothing that is substantive happens with due respect vis-a-vis -vis public policy and regulations on crypto Twitter. <laughs> so I mean that with deep, deep deference, of course, to crypto Twitter. I'm going to set aside the uh, last 10 minutes of the conversation to talk about crypto Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, and so what I care about is the way public policy is actually made is captured in this kind of expression, money talks, wealth whispers, power is silent. And, and that's why you have to really look at the public policy of payment stable coins in long arcs. In 2019, Mika was an afterthought, it didn't exist as a, as a set of laws. By July of 2024, the common market of the European Union has a comprehensive framework for digital assets. Imperfect in parts, perfect in others, but broad. And that creates regulatory certainty for a market of nearly 800 million people, third largest economic bloc in the world, did not exist. Um, rules from Singapore to Hong Kong to Japan to the UAE and here in the United States all have been promulgated around what does it look like when you want to be a responsible actor issuing a payment stablecoin. And the standards are pretty clear. Um, and, and so I think none of those features existed of the external market environment. And so the, that, the clarity in the external market environment, what it does is it gives comfort to companies like PayPal to launch its own stablecoin. PayPal wasn't waiting for legislation to do this. They did it. Uh, because there's sufficient clarity in the marketplace that this is a here-to-stay innovation and may very well be crypto's killer app. And then I think, you know, you see the integration with major household named companies. That laundry list is growing of firms that want to integrate this. And so I liken stablecoin adoption to um, the way cloud computing was first adopted by a lot of companies. Terrifying at first, no one wanted to get rid of their physical infrastructure and their server farms, but eventually it starts to feel um, inevitable. That, that, that settlement of dollars could occur in the 21st century on alternative rails, alternative ledgering systems, and alternative uh, digital currency structures. And that's exactly what the stablecoin is. So we've gone back in time. We sort of talked about the progress that's made, particularly in other uh, non-U.S. jurisdictions, you know, between 2019 and now. I want to go forward and I, I want to go through a thought experiment right now, which is it's this time next year payment stablecoin legislation has passed the House, it's passed the Senate, it's been signed by the president. Uh, you know, 
remarkable things have happened is sort of the progress of this bill that we're talking about right now. What what has to happen to get there? What what does effective engagement actually look like, Dante, to get us to that point? Uh, and what shouldn't we be doing? <laughs> well, number one, first of all, I, I, my job, and I, I suspect yours as well, Amir, is to ensure that what you've just described is not a work of fiction for our conversation today, but rather a work of public policy. I would say a couple of things. Number one, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And 2022, a year in which crypto collectively lost $2 trillion and there was no individual regulatory adversary that made that happen. That was self-made from Terra Luna to FTX and many things in between. The industry, you know, scored a lot of own goals last year. And so that I liken to the blend of a dot-com Dodd-Frank moment that regulators and policymakers need to be seen to be doing something in order to protect consumers. And sadly, regulation and consumer protections are often executed in hindsight. And so don't let a good crisis go to waste. And then don't let a good adversary go to waste. And in this case, the, the adversary to many in Washington might be China, it might be internationalization, it might be offshore entities. And so this notion that the industry is a big enough, substantive enough sector to be regulated means we've all arrived. And so what I would argue, what we can do in the industry, knowing that crypto like banks and like major economies, we're not monolithic. There's no single person who speaks for the whole sector. But one of the things I think we can do is... Um, categorically reject the bad actors in the industry, categorically reject the notion that if good technology is co-opted by bad people, somehow the, the whole country has to be in flames and sort of in arms with one another. We have to be able to demonstrate through personhood and constructive policy engagement that the sector matters, the sector has accountability, and that the things that we could do in the sector are actually critical to upgrading financial infrastructure, upgrading infrastructure for the 21st century in ways that you cannot if, if it's just the traditional internet and if it's just brick and mortar. And so I'm, I'm actually more optimistic today uh, that we can advance sensible policy in the United States um, because we could say many things about our policy environment, but better to get it right than to get it first. And there's many jurisdictions that got it first, but argue, arguably have no industry to speak of. Whereas in the United States, we're slow to the altar of legislating the sector, but nonetheless, we have most of the major activities are captured here in the U.S. I want to I want to drill into brass tacks of what that looks like, because a lot of it resonates. But in particular, I think a lot of people listening to this are hearing it. They're like, this sounds good. What does it actually mean for me? You know, what what is sort of the difference between, um, you know, avoiding own goals and actually being able to engage and make sure that these crises don't go to waste? Uh, what does it mean to actually be held accountable and be willing uh, to, you know, talk to uh, some of the flaws in the industry and the mistakes that we've been made? Like, what what can people do uh, to be active here? And and what do you wish we would do yeah, more? Yeah, do of? I just have to tweet more? Yeah, exactly. No, Austin, don't tweet more. That that probably doesn't help. Uh, <laughs> well, think of it. You know, when when crypto, sorry, not crypto, when Twitter, for example, some years ago had a problem a trust problem once upon a time. Um, there was a ratio of one-to-one -one bots to individual humans. I think this was back in like 2017, 2018. Crypto had a, pur Twitter, sorry, had a purge and introduced this idea of a blue check mark. So what would it take for the crypto industry to have a blue check mark moment? What types of activities and or entities and or assets should be purged and and to create sort of broad market confidence that what what the bill of goods is stated on on these innovations actually can be satisfied and met, uh, and that you know if we want to be permanently banked we have to be bankable, 
If we want to build trust and transparency and auditability, we need to be auditable. If we want to build robust technology that actually doesn't break, it actually can't just be vaporware. It has to be credible and it has to be world scale and, and durable. Like all of those things and the stories around those things aren't going to be told on crypto Twitter and they're not going to be told with sort of hyperbolic and, and um, heavily aspirational crypto white papers. They're going to be told, however, by real people who, frankly, ought to show up more often in Washington. I know, for example, um, Coinbase and the Stand with Crypto Coalition are planning on bringing folks to D.C. who are the developers and entrepreneurs and builders to show that there's a face to this innovation. And, and that can go a long way. And I, I do think there is, um, at least today, more members of Congress, more senators who have gone more deeply into interrogating the good and the bad of this sector than they have ever before. Um, that's a great start. And it might take years before we get the full package of desired policies, but that's why it's critical to protect and be responsive to this fintech constitutional crisis. The states in the void of a, the body politic working you know, sensibly as a whole are the laboratories. And so protecting those boundaries is going to be really critical moving forward. Yeah, I guess one of the things, like you see a little bit of this with like what Coinbase is starting to do with Stand With Crypto, but... You know, if you go to most other industries or most other issue action groups, right, there's a day where everyone shows up in D.C., whether it's a climate lobby or someone, you know, for social justice. There, there's some form of civil action that you can take to to make your senators, your congresspeople aware of how you feel in a specific issue. There's a big contingency for crypto in the United States, right? If you look at if you look at most of the studies, most of the breakout applications are still built by American citizens or people in the United States. But finance seems to be one of these things where a bunch of people showing up in DC and trying to protest something doesn't really ever seem to go well. Do you have a sense of why that is, is there something just that our, our government treats money differently than it does other types of public policy? Like, why has historically that sort of action not been effective and, and you think probably the wrong approach here? Well, look, I, first of all, it speaks to the comparative maturity of the sector. Just the basic math. For every me or Amira who might be in Washington or come to Washington every now and again, there's a ratio of 12 to 1, uh, 12 lobbyists to policymakers. Uh, who thinks status quo is just fine. And, and so the, the, this is an industry that doesn't yet have kind of an institutional voice, at least not at the banking and payments level, and certainly for issues like the payment stablecoin agenda and legislative package to make it to the finish line. There's a lot of equities that you have to cross um, before you've even made it to a credible package that will receive Senate support. And there's a lot of aspects of the industry that, you know, we as a single entity cannot speak on behalf of, right? You know, you need the voice of the blockchain ecosystem, the, the voice of the developers and technologies and other, other aspects need to speak with one voice in order to kind of get to that state of play. But, but you could argue that's also the exciting piece of the puzzle, right? Is, is knowing that there's enough people in the sector so that it is a political matter. For example, central bank digital currencies are a matter of presidential politics, perhaps a little distracting from the near-term stablecoin agenda. But nonetheless, again, I think all of these are signs that the sector has arrived and with arrival comes a price. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there, I think it's um, the decentralized nature of crypto also makes it, I think in particular, difficult to gather people. And it's, um, 
it's a sign of maybe sort of uh, broader broader issues or broader trends in democracy where it's just really difficult to get people to show up and engage in an effective way. Yeah, I, I don't think this is just crypto. I think generally speaking, most people don't know how to engage with their policymakers and do so in an effective way. And so, you know, um, I think we are very appreciative of the work that you and your team at Circle does, because I think you're you're always there talking about this stuff and, and you've been doing it for years. Um, Dante, you know, I, uh, I appreciate your being here. I know Austin does too. Is there any last things that you want to leave the audience with before we wrap up? Words of wisdom? Well, you know, I, I mean, as as maybe controversial as it may sound, because I know that part of the ethos of crypto is it's at some level a little bit of an anti-establishment um, kind of at least philosophical agenda. But uh, But I'm actually of the view that there's nothing more uniquely maybe Americans, since we are talking about U.S. policy, than the philosophy of this industry, and that to be against everything isn't serving the goals of the people in the sector particularly well. And that what we need to be able to demonstrate with as much fervor as we can show folks how we are against things like, you know, encroachment on digital privacy and the desires for self-sovereignty and so on, we ought to start demonstrating what we stand for. Because I think that, to me, is not perfectly clear. And to many people in Washington, I don't think it's particularly clear what crypto stands for. And, and so it's, it's very clear what we stand against. We stood unanimously against things like Tornado Cash, but we couldn't tell the world nor anybody else what in its place. And so I think that's just a great opportunity, Amira and Austin. And I think, you know, conversations like these, platforms like yours, the opportunity, again, for networks like the ones we're all trying to build, we need to be absolutely black and white about the things that we stand for as well. Amen to that. One of the things I say is that I'm I'm an America maxi, right? My my ideals in American are what drew me to crypto uh, and valuing democracy, but in a in decentralization, but in a system that is reason that works and that encourages engagement. And at the end of the day, also makes things happen is is what's really critical to the core of the system. And I think that that's true in crypto also. So that is a lovely note to end on. Um, and thank you so, so much for being here, Dante. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. 